0: I'm going to go even farther past 2030 into the 2030s, 2040s. That's really where we can drive to be the majority of the supply of a new lithium batteries.
1: Well, Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today is October 7th, 2021. I'm Eric Planey.
2: Hello, I'm Lucas Finko. And I'm Ajay Co-Chair.
1: And together with Aj, we are the Pirates of Cleantech.
0: Yar. Yar.
1: <laughs> AJ, is there a Canadian version of the pirate rant or the it's, pirate
0: rant? It must be a, E-H-A. <laughs> a. No, I'm just kidding. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. A. Yeah. A couple months ago, we had Andy Palmer on, uh, former CEO, CEO of Acid Martin, British gentleman, and he ripped into the American pirate rant. So uh, it took us a while to get him to do one. <laughs> Well, first off, it's uh, it's great to have you on board. Uh, just for a little background for everybody, uh, AJ and I have been talking for a little while now, probably a little bit over a year, and it was, uh, we actually featured his company, Life Cycle, in one of our articles of the week, probably early on into the Pirates, uh, maybe the beginning of season two, when we were, uh, you were featured in Charge DVs. And so happy to read about and hear about what you guys are doing because it sounds like this is something that potentially satisfies a great need in the market to truly make batteries as green as possible. So before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background uh, and how you kind of migrated into starting LifeCycle?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I'm a chemical engineer originally and uh, grew up in that space. And I met my co-founder, Tim Johnston at a firm named Hatch, which is a global engineering procurement construction management firm, EPCM firm. So we, you know, Hatch has really been focused on metallurgy for a long time. It's a multi-industry focused company, but metallurgy and the tide of mining is a core uh, part of that. So uh, Tim and I were really working on cobalt and nickel and copper projects of base metals and lithium um, came into that part way. And, and the focus was really around hydrometallurgy, so meaning what chemistry so huge change in the last, obviously 10, 15 years. And uh, there is this big shift of focus of making something called lithium carbonate, lithium hydroxide. And for listeners, that's what goes into a cathode that then goes into a cell. Ultimately that goes into your device or goes into an electric vehicle. So totally being driven by this, you know, big growth, obviously exponential growth in lithium batteries. And that obviously piqued our curiosity, working a lot of the space and lithium. But this question of recycling and the end of life of lithium-ion batteries, as well as you know being close to that industry, we knew as you make batteries, it's not perfect, and it generates a level of yield loss or rejects. So we kept getting this question, you know, technical folks in the space, in the space, and focused commercially too, and couldn't find a good answer to it. You know, we basically concluded that. These batteries have been going to, and that's held true, to historical, more waste-oriented uh, supply chains where a lot of things that are not desired are burned off, and really those groups have been after, say, nickel and cobalt. But lithium, you know, its life cycle, which I'll we'll get into later, but that's potentially twenty percent of our medium-long range revenue. None of those existing processes recover lithium, and so for us working in the lithium space, it was like, well, then how is that? How is it any better than hydrocarbons if? You're going to go into a processing of, of life and the, the lithium is lost. So hence was born life cycle. We left our careers at hatch. Uh, that was 2016. We're now almost 160 people, uh, commercial business, uh, rapidly growing and, uh, couldn't be more excited about where we're headed, but the industry is definitely in a time of, of great acceleration and, uh, we're moving with that. Wow. That's fantastic.
2: Wow. That's crazy. Um, Aj, you know, haven't haven't we been recycling batteries for decades? I mean, d- didn't we recycle that acid batteries way back when? And and what's what's new about this?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, lead acid batteries, like starter batteries in cars, and there are many other things too. Of course, very mature um, circular economy, and oh, you know. You know, those batteries are in a way simpler. They also have variability, but, you know, really it's lead and plastic and electrolyte and other aspects in there. So, right. so there are established ways of recovering that lead. And and it's actually over time decreased the amount of lead mining that has to happen because it re-enters the chain mm-hmm. and it's very closely tied to the battery manufacturers for lead acid. So when people think of their starter battery, like in the car, there's a lead acid battery. Type. Right. So, So lithium ion, completely different type of battery. Uh, Different materials, Uh, the first lithium ion battery was commercialized in 1991, uh, and it's been researched a lot before that. But ever since 91, there's been this growth of the manufacturing and the proliferation in other other applications. And it's only recently the cost has really started to come down, which has this snowball effect into more uh, applications, of course, including electric vehicles. So this is now... A reason and a need that's growing for hey okay what's the best way to recycle this stream of the material but it is quite different relative to lead acid you have a cathode side that has you know, always lithium but could be nickel could be cobalt maybe may not be nickel cobalt you have a anode side which is graphite you have copper aluminum plastics electrolytes it's very complicated and i think the last point of that is you know a lot of existing players have shied away so, say the lead acid battery recyclers historically the waste management of the world from lithium ion because of their propensity to be volatile, aka go, go boom sometimes. So, people know that, um, but that's been a that's been a source of aversion for a lot of the existing folks not to go anywhere near the space. So, it's the combination of all those things that's driven the need to say, okay, hey, how would we actually recycle these batteries if we were to create a purpose built? technology and infrastructure.
1: Well, that, that's, a, that's a great segue into our next question because, you know, obviously we don't want you to give away your secret sauce, but when I started reading about your process, it's really interesting because it's really kind of a dual capability of both mechanical and chemical, if I understand correctly. So can you talk a little bit about your process? And then I would say as a follow-up, we're, we're seeing a lot of activity from other companies now who say they're also looking at technologies to recycle lithium ion batteries you know, how does yours differ a little bit? Maybe just talk a little bit about the competitive landscape.
0: Yeah, for sure. And actually, what I might do is start with what's been happening outside of us and then contrast that to what, what we do. So so for folks to understand in, in the recycling space for lithium ion batteries, you have pre-processing and post-processing. So pre-processing is any you know battery out of your device to an electric vehicle to manufacturing scrap. That's something to highlight. As you make batteries, it's not perfect. Uh, kicks off different types of material that need to be rejected and our yield loss essentially make batteries so all that gamut of material uh the first step is pre-processing usually so meaning getting from that to some intermediate product now the industry term for that is black mass uh black mass is a uh, it's a mixture of the cathode very creative technical terms just a black powder uh so so that's what is made as the common intermediate and then the second step, the post-processing, is where that gets transformed back into finished goods. So I often draw the analogy of, you know, dough to the pizza, right? Like, you know, it's the attributed product for the finished good. So that's the general supply chain and technologies stratify into each of those categories. So our pre-processing is the spoke and the post-processing is the hub. So that's what that terminology is that we use. Okay, so how is each of those differentiated? On the pre-processing side, I'm going to illustrate the example here of, say, a Chevy Bolt battery, for no reason I'm just using that as an example. Um, so say you have a problem with your car, you go back to the dealership, they replace either the to the whole pack, for example, which is in the chassis of the vehicle. That dealer would historically have to ship that potentially very far away because recycling facilities tend to be historically centralized for this. And so that's already now a big logistics cost. The recycler, when they would receive it, they would typically discharge that battery, uh, you know, to get out the residual energy. And that could be done by throwing it into a brine bath, like a saltwater bath. I've seen this happening, especially if there there in bubbles for days, potentially, uh, or hook it up to a resistor bank. So people sometimes try to discharge it to get the energy, but that takes a long time. Then that, they typically dismantle that battery pack down to its cell level. So for folks, you know, in a battery pack in the chassis of the vehicle, there's actually thousands of lithium ion batteries that are in a collection. So they will typically manually isolate those cells pack by pack. So that's again, a ton of time, not very safe either. And then historically it would be shred and then they would go and burn off what they don't want, which is the, could be the plastics, could be electrolyte. So all in all, if you follow what I just said, not very tailor-made high cost, you know, in terms of labor, not very safe, not great environmental profile because you're spewing things into the atmosphere. And at the same time, not high recovery, which is what drives the revenue potential in terms of end product. So our spoke, just take all those things I said and invert it. We don't dismantle heavily. We don't discharge. We don't sort into specific chemistries. The core of the spoke is a submersion-based shredding process that we own patents over that solves all those issues. And without using a thermal approach, we get from all type of lithium battery input through to intermediate products, plastics, the metals, copper, aluminum, and the black mass, but a cleaner product, and with a great environmental profile, no wastewater discharge, no air emissions that are harmful. So our Rochester Spoke, which is our second facility like that, it's commercial, we're about 100 feet away from residential. So you can imagine the first thing I described, if you were living in that neighborhood, you would say, I don't want that thing. It's a battery iterator. Right. So that's the first step. And the second thing that I'll, I'll pause, the post-processing, that's where we take the black mass and go back to the individual elements. So people can think of that like the uh, building blocks to a house, something like the bricks. Historically, that would be merged into the mining and refining industry. So nickel smelters would take that black mass and mix it up with their mine material and other alloys maybe they're taking, and then eventually get to a metal, a nickel cobalt metal, but they lose the lithium and lose graphite, lose manganese and all these other key things in the battery. Our hub is a wet chemistry process, non-thermal again, that goes from black mass right back to battery grade chemical that can go right back into a new lithium ion battery again. So those two things together, just to summarize, is what drives a much better economic profile because we're minimizing costs, right. boosting recovery, and a much better environmental profile because we're actually purpose built in terms of dealing with lithium-ion batteries.
2: Oh wow, that's that's awesome! So, let, can I just get you to estimate for me where you think this battery recycling market is going to be in five years? I mean, what how much penetration in the market you think we can get in five years?
0: Yeah, so I think. It's interesting today, the market globally, you have about circa say 500,000 tons of lithium ion batteries that are available for recycling per year globally. By 25, our recent estimates are that that could be close to 2 million tons of lithium ion battery materials available for recycling. The big part of that growth is really from manufacturing scrap. So as you make a battery cell, there's a bunch of raw ingredients that go into it. You have rejects due to quality reasons so say you get to the point of making the full cell and it just doesn't pass quality checks you get rejected and for folks to keep in mind of course what a manufacturer doesn't want is a recall so they're rejecting to make sure they have unwavering quality Uh, but before that there's also yield loss so give people an example in the battery there's these aluminum sheets that have the cathode on it it's actually what the cathode is so when they make that they make this long sheet and they Basically, coat on the cathode, which is a black powder, and the edge of the sheet is tapered. Typically, so we'll cut the cathode to fit into the cell. So you end up with these offcuts, just like making a leather uh, product or uh, furniture, for example. use yep. your example. So, so that ends up being a stream of material that needs to be dealt with. So, hmm. we're already getting that, and the growth between now and twenty-five most pronounced is because of way more manufacturing, and hence more manufacturing scrap. Huh. That's well before. The future large influx of material that has to come because if we're getting the five to ten percent scrap today the 90 to 95 percent has gone somewhere so that's what's there to come back later uh in the 2020s and 2030s
2: so so if you could make a guess if i buy a lithium ion battery in 2025 how much percent of that would be recycled do you think
0: in 25 and i'd say 25 through 2030 we can get roughly 10 to 20 percent of the global demand globally if we do this well to come from recycled sources and i'm going to go even farther past 2030 into 2030s 2040s that's really where we can drive to be the majority of the supply of a new lithium ion battery so that's the end state that's the end goal but we're getting there
1: that's really cool you know uh, i didn't have this in the question list so but when you were talking about this, I know that recently you signed on some very public high profile partnerships. And it sounds like those partnerships, if you want to talk for a couple of seconds about those, those kind of help lock you in to receive that kind of waste material, I believe. And then also sourcing some other material. Can you just give a quick overview for. Yeah,
0: sure. Yeah. I'll highlight three just quickly. Um, So publicly there's a a deal out there that it's clear in a partnership with uh, with Ultium, Ultium is the joint venture between General Motors and LG Energy Solution, which is really the unit that's making batteries, and it's part owned by GM and part owned by LG Yes, uh, uh, making batteries for GM. So that is a big push on their end. Today is October 7th. Yesterday, they had their, their investor day. They were talking a lot about where they're going with respect to electrification, Huge push. So that material, that agreement is scrapped so the manufacturing scrap I was referring to explaining, that's an example of that sort of agreement. Um, second example, um, we work closely with a group named Univar. Univar is a large conglomerate and they have within that uh, environmental services. So they provide on-site environmental services for say vehicle manufacturing where they have all sorts of waste that's coming out of the plant. So it could be everything from the trash to you know, something out of the manufacturing line. Um, that's a little different. It's like one or two removed from the making of the cell. So you can have a lot of diversified you know, sources. So Univar works closely with many OEMs and one of their customers is uh, Daimler. So Mercedes-Benz U.S. International. So about a month ago, we announced an incremental spoke facility, the shredding facility uh, as part of our technology in Alabama. Uh, so that is tied to Mercedes-Benz U.S. International's battery factory where they're making modules and packs. And part of that waste stream is rejected modules and packs with, you know, in concert uh, with univart So that's the second example, again, that manufacturing scrap stream. And then thirdly and lastly, quickly, I'll just highlight uh, a week ago, um, at the end of September, we announced a strategic investment from Koch uh, Strategic Platforms, which is the investment arm as part of Coke Investment Group, focused on new economy um, areas, including the energy transformation. So why we did that, it opened up for us a access point to great execution enhancement for our capabilities, to build more spokes, to help with deployment of spokes around the world, and to augment our our transition to operating the hub with operational readiness. So that's super exciting as well, hugely validating um, and gives us extra horsepower and bed strength as we look to keep up with our customers.
1: No, it's fantastic. And and you've probably heard on the podcast, but, but you know, the Altium plant in Ohio is in my hometown. So for you to have a connection with there, I'm really happy about the, you know, just help that plant get successful and really create that circular system that you talked about with, with acid batteries replicating it. So it's great. And you know, you've had so much growth, you've had so many announcements. And one thing that's really interesting is, you know, you really had to make some choices about how you're going to finance that. And you did something that was very hot and talked about, of course, in Cleantech right now, where Cleantech and Wall Street are being married, and it's with the uh, Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation, or SPAC. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys came to the decision process that going that route was the optimal thing for you? And it's not going to be for everybody, but just curious to hear how you got to that point and what the benefits have been thus far for you.
0: That's the the right point, Eric. I think it's for everybody, but it works for some situations. And- yeah, look, so for us, we've been moving towards the hub um, in Rochester for some time. I mean, ever since we founded the company, the whole goal here for Tim and me was to get back to better grade chemicals. I mean, the, the spokes are very important and they coexist with the hub and they can't exist without each other. But uh, the Hygiumet facility, the wet chemistry facility in Rochester is really the, the thing we're gunning for all along. So so that's where we you know, decided to go that was now a year and a half ago in terms of scope and scale and location. Um, so on the back of that, you then say, okay, well, that's the business plan. This is what we need to do. That's what our customers need. That's where we need to go. So then that begets a financing need. And I'll say in our case, you know, we had all sorts of options available to us, be it you know, private-based funding. In um, the metals world, you have other creative things you can do as well that are good and it you know, could be streaming royalties, off-take prepayments, there's all sorts of stuff you can do uh, in our space. But the thing that struck us was the speed at which the market was moving, even a year ago, um, we wanted to get that flexibility to move forward expediently. And one of the big challenges typically for clean tech and and generally speaking growth companies, is just the inordinate amount of time that you can spend just raising money and not focusing on the business. And we've been fortunate to have a really, really good team. And I haven't had to worry (laughs) sometimes if I'm, focus on that you know historically before we did this process but it just struck us that it's just you know we're in this time and we need to capitalize on the technology we have the relationships we have um, and that needs capital so that's why for us it made a lot of sense and we went through a process to find the right partner and raise funding associated and it's gone very well for us as you said there Eric you know again not necessarily for every company <laughs> not for everybody comes with of course being public which is something you know we're happy to be in terms of Platform and, and access to capital. Obviously, we're fully funded now for our base plan, which is great. But, but uh, yeah, I, it's worked out extremely well for us. But you can see the bifurcation of results. We could say across companies, depending on if they're ready or not. If I put it that way,
1: I, f- I feel like you guys, just from getting to know you a little bit, you you have the discipline and the structure even before you merged into this back, and so that helps you with the visibility and reporting. That's essential to make sure it's being done right. So it seems like you guys have been you have the right philosophy and the right culture as a company and makes it something that could be really tangible for you going forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's always a balance, right? And it comes down to speed and ability to execute. And I think where you're also in the life cycle of the business, not to use a pun, but, but, uh, but you know we were at a stage when we did that, where our, our plan is clear. We're, we're moving ahead. We know what we need to do for the customers. That's great. Of course, the market keeps growing and is you know, bigger than what we expected. Um, But that's it. Whereas I could see if you were, you know, potentially in an earlier iteration of the business, like not our business, but somebody else, and you're still trying to figure out where you need to go and what you need to do. I mean, you don't want to be public at that time. And I guess where you see some of these things just not work, to be blunt. Uh, So we're fortunate. Uh, But as you said, Eric, it's all about structured process, rigor, still being nimble, we're trying to balance that with, you know, growth. Well said, well said.
2: Okay. Last question here, AJ. We we do have listeners that are early on in their careers. So I'm wondering if you could give a little advice um, from your perspective on um, people who want to enter into the battery recycling industry.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I'll show two pieces of uh, advice or commentary. I think one is it's funny. I was talking to a cell site analyst recently and, he tell he told me that he says he tells his kids, you know, if you want to get a job in, in an industry, he's just two industries. One was space debris cleanup. <laughs> that was one. <laughs> and the second he said was battery recycling on his own. Uh so, so I think look, I the 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 wisdom, if I have any, that I would impart is, you know, look, I think whether you're trying to get into this industry or get into clean tech more broadly, and if you're you know a student. I think one of the biggest and the best traits that one can have is curiosity and just trying to learn. And when you're in this type of industry that we're in, it's constantly changing. So you will never have a static level of knowledge to say, hey, I know exactly what's happening. It keeps changing. So that's an attitude that will then, to me, lead one to potentially what your passion is. And I think often young people are told, hey, follow your passion. I think that's very hard. I don't think many people know what their passion is. I think following your curiosities will potentially lead to that. So that's why I've ended up here Uh, and I'm in a fortunate position, but I think that level of attitude will help carry you through very exciting, you know, potential areas you could work.
1: Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about space debris, because that's always something that I feel like we need to be focusing on (laughs) now. So that's, that's fantastic that he even mentioned
0: that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, robots. Yeah, robots and space. That's my area. <laughs> <laughs> well, do that. Like,
1: you know, they do that X Prize every couple of years for something big, and I always thought that that should be something talked about. Yeah, X Prize for someone that really comes up with a great. Well, space there product.
0: you go. Maybe you guys can make the suggestion. There you yeah.
1: go. <laughs> that's a, that's <laughs> our next business plan altogether. <laughs> um, AJ, really, you know, it's been great over the last year and a half to follow your success and your growth as a company. uh, you know, just really like uh, it, you have a passion about it that we can see, but that passion is backed by logic and a solid plan. And that plan is really going to benefit, I think, this planet going forward. So, uh, you know, Lucas and I and all the Pirates uh, listeners, we really wish you and the company the best of luck. And, you know, we'd love to have you on in the future just to hear a little bit more of a follow-up and, you know, anything we can do to help spread the word, we would like to do that
0: for you. Appreciate it. No, it's been great to be on and and uh, always love Telling the story of life cycle and battery cycling. And if I were just to just leave people with the thought, just that, you know, would, and everyone listening to this is probably, you know, clean tech bought in, but, you know, that typical thing that said about EVs, oh, what's going to happen to the batteries? They're going to cause a toxic waste issue. And we see it happening all the time on Twitter. Somebody will often say something and it's it's growing. People then tag us and say, hey, nope, that's not true. Here's a company <laughs> as an example that's that's doing something about it. So, just Want to leave people with that message that this is not going to be an issue for EV proliferation. We're here, we're pushing, and uh, this can be both a good business and good for the planet. Fantastic. Awesome.
1: Great, well, thank awesome. you again. Uh, great to have. I think you could be officially our first Canadian guest, so uh, Woo-hoo. you know, yeah, eh? <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's your substitute pirate yard. so
0: we'll take it exactly, exactly, you know.
1: And, <laughs> Maybe every, uh, you know, across from every one of your facilities in the U.S. There will be a poutine uh, restaurant, you know, selling uh, fantastic fries and greens. I will
0: suggest that to the team. I will suggest (laughs) that.
1: (laughs) AJ, thank you again and best wishes for the future.
2: Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. And we're back. That was was great, Eric. Good Uh, good idea, having AJ.
1: Uh, first off, it's it's great having a person of AJ's caliber as our first guest of the season, mm. and uh, he really knocked the cover off the ball, or should we say he knocked a cathode off the battery. I don't know if that's a good analogy. Ooh. Um, he, he What I liked about AJ is he really got into the meat of how much of this problem of battery creation can be solved by the recycling process over the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. And it's a significant amount of content going back into the battery, which is exactly the ecosystem needs to be created.
2: Yep. I was shocked when he said 60% personally, I didn't know it was that high. So that's a really good goal to to reach for. And, you know, we still, just because we're doing clean energy, that doesn't mean we, we can forget about sustainability, right? We still have to close cycle our industries to make sure we're not, Creating some other waste stream that's going to cause some other problem, right? So, <laughs> you know, why going around creating more problems? Let's just do things right, right?
1: This is a little bit of a sidebar to the argument and the discussion we just had. But I really get ticked off when people who criticize EVs kept, keep saying they compare the burning of gasoline to <laughs> the sausage making in the battery making process. And they're saying, people say, oh, look how bad it is for the environment to make a battery. What they neglect to talk about, that's very apples to oranges, what they neglect to talk about is the fact that when you make gasoline, the amount of energy that it takes to make gasoline is so significant, so, so significant, that um, really, like, recycling batteries is going to really be that solution that really puts the the critics to, to bay.
2: Yeah. Uh, there's a great YouTube video on that. I saw it recently. They didn't have any numbers, but it was quite illustrative, and and it's almost like that circular argument of, oh, they burned a lot of coal in the process to make that solar panel. I'm like, well, no, not if you have a clean grid, then that argument is totally mute.
1: So why don't we do this? Before we get into our articles, let's do a couple of cleaning items. First off, of course, Lucas and I always want to say that the views and opinions that we express by the two of us are those fully of us, not well, any we're affiliated with. Uh, also, you know, we did talk about um, AJ was very diligent in talking about SPAC process, and so obviously he is a public company now. Uh, you know, please for anyone who is thinking about doing any investing in clean energy, please talk to a professional financial representative about uh, the choices you make, and you know, please do your homework. We always recommend that to everybody. That's
2: yep, number do one. Your, do your own due diligence. Yep, we are not recommending anything on the show. correct? Right?
1: that's right. And number two, the more fun part. It's autumn. I think the last time I had a beer, I had a and Kugel's Summer Shandy to close out summer. Well, in transition, my neighbor, Myron, who's the greatest guy in the world, gave me a and Kugel's Harvest Patch Shandy. Yes. That's all mm. I get
2: today.
1: Yes, this is a good one.
2: Yeah, Oktoberfest beers are out. Yeah, I don't actually have one on me. I have this River Horse from uh, Ewing, New Jersey. Uh, river Horse Brewing, a Triple Horse, which is a Belgian Triple, which Everybody who knows me knows I love Belgian beers, so cheers.
1: Cheers. By the way, this is, uh, you know, Line Kugels is a uh, home state of Wisconsin.
2: Yeah, yes, yeah, so I'm aware. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone in Wisconsin is aware, yes.
1: Just want to bring it up.
2: <laughs> Are you ready? You want to talk about some articles?
1: Let's do some articles. All right. This is a great one. I've been waiting for almost two weeks to bring this one up. Uh, <laughs> it's not an article, but it's a reference to an NPR audio interview and there's significant for two reasons number one the title of the article is or the the new segment a colorado coal plant could help solve renewable energy storage problem that is significant but it's really significant we need to do a pirate shout out to fellow pirate jack eiley of excel energy who was interviewed in this article so yar
2: yar, sure. jack good be yar, jack
1: Jack, uh, if you go on our website, on our YouTube page, uh, he did one of our very early uh, reviews of a BMW i3 used from a dealership in Boulder. So. But what's really cool, going back to the article, <clears throat> so uh, Excel Energy, who is probably one of the best utilities in the United States in terms of adopting clean energy policy, um, putting clean energy into the grid, came up with this really innovative solution in a small town in Colorado that has a coal plant. The coal plant is slated to close, but instead of getting rid of the facility, they're going to use it for energy storage, but not just energy storage. They're going to make it a molten salt facility where they're actually going to melt molten salt, big block of salt, and they're going to use that to generate the same steep turbine that is on facility right now, connected to the same grid, and it's going to be a new and innovative way to have energy storage based upon the melting and and steam generating of that, um, that salt into the turbine. This is fantastic. Uh, You know, Jack did a great job with the interview explaining it. But what I like about this is not only is it innovative, but it also just takes into consideration the impact on jobs and people and their livelihoods. A small town that would lose a coal plant, those are a lot of jobs that could potentially go away. This is compassion and consideration by Excel Energy to help keep those jobs and yet also contribute to renewable energy solution badly needed for energy storage.
2: Yeah, this is awesome. We need to see more of this. There's tons of coal plants shutting down. The infrastructure is already there. So all you have to do is put your new technology in and turn it on. Um, I mean, it's a little more complicated. Now. You still need all the permits and the interconnection process. But all you know, all the equipment's there, which is a huge uh, barrier to entry. So yep, love this. So,
1: now, I, before we go to the next article, though, it's, it pains me to do this, but uh, Jack is a great friend. I go back many years with him to undergrad days. But I do have to criticize something about Jack during the interview. Unfortunately, he did not use his NPR voice. Anyone knows who's being interviewed on NPR, you have to speak like you're on an episode of Felicity, a very hushed tone. That's how NPR people operate. But he had a very stern, very aggressive, you know, Ohio Midwest type of Monte Carlo driving uh, voice. So next time, Jack, please use the softest voice possible because you are on NPR.
2: (laughs) He was using his construction site voice.
1: Yes. (laughs) No more of that, Jack. No more.
2: Hey, right, cool. Well really done.
1: Medical. Well done, Pirate. Well done. Uh number two, uh uh Recharge uh magazine, another fantastic uh magazine. I don't think we cover enough of their articles, but this one, man, this one was is, you know, if I didn't have Jack's article, this would have been my most exciting article. But um if you could scroll down a little bit, this was from I think mm. October sorry, yes. October fifth, just a couple of days ago. Yeah. Construction begins on world's largest green hydrogen power plant, part of a unique baseload solar project. This thing blows my mind away. Siemens, uh, who I've always had a love for. Um, Siemens has done some great things in my life uh, during my economic development days. They're going to operate a 170 million uh, euro facility in a remote part of French Guyana. Is This is so great because there's so many players involved in this from a technology standpoint. They're going to do The world combined the world's largest hydrogen power plant with a 16 megawatt electrolyzer, three megawatt fuel cell, 55 megawatts of solar panels and 20 megawatt, uh, 38 megawatt hours of batteries in a project all consolidated in French Guyana. What's great about that region is I think it's close to the equator. So they have really uh, very well easy forecasted um, solar exposure, sun exposure. Mm -hmm. So they're talking about 12 hours of solar during the day that will like you know eventually uh, create kind of the energy storage through the electrolyzer process and they can offload with the batteries uh electricity during the night so really cool and innovative you know and it's amazing you think 170 million euros sounds like a lot but for the consortium put together it's not this is such a great testbed of advancing the cause of green hydrogen which everyone seems to be talking a lot about but lately people have been putting the brakes on because the technology isn't there yet the technology gets there because of beta projects like this one that'll actually have practical application as well. So well done to the consortium. I'd like to call out all the companies, but I can't pronounce half of them correctly. So um great article. Really tech uh recommend taking a look at it.
2: CEOG. uh. Yeah, this is great. I mean, this is this to me is the future. You're not just gonna have a power plant with a turbine and a transmission line anymore. That's not the future. The future is solar panels and wind turbines and energy storage and electrolyzers and you know hydrogen generation and you know a fuel cell for you know off off off-peak and compressed air you know you're going to have all these technologies that have to come together and mix together and then it becomes a great optimization project right for mathematicians like myself so uh this is the future Obviously we're going to try it and learn things and then make a better iteration next time. So this is great. i love to see this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Okay. Next one. Yeah. I got two more. So I'll be quick. Okay. Uh, I kind of dovetails a little bit to what AJ was talking about as our guest, but this is um, I got this from TechCrunch. Uh, This one just came out yesterday. General motors, General electric agreed to develop rare earth materials used in EV manufacturing. Great article. Again, we, we've talked about how batteries have a lot of precious earth materials. Uh, sourcing them comes from a lot of overseas uh, countries. Some of those countries uh, you know, could be potentially politically unstable, et cetera. So GM and GE are signing up. GE has a, a renewable energy arm. Um, they wanna cooperate, they wanna grow that business and they wanna source materials and be effective in using them. So when you see a good article uh, like this, talking about two you know, stalwart American companies being proactive and thinking about where the hockey puck is going and thinking about forecasting and planning, you take this and combine it with what AJ's doing, what other companies are doing in battery recycling, it really kind of uh, puts the naysayers to bed about, you know, the scarcity of resources and about there being no solutions. Here there's another tangible solution, the solving uh precious earth minerals and resource allocation.
2: If if people don't know this is an issue, this is an issue, right? Uh with people can, you know, do a back of the envelope calculation and figure out how much cobalt and lithium and materials we need and then quickly realize that, you know, we're not there. So, uh, this, you know, this has to get solved. So it's great to see this, um, moving forward.
1: Yep. Yep. So, uh, last story I'll just go over quickly. Uh, it's kind of a story that I've brought up before, but, you know, obviously we want to talk a little bit about what's going on in world. ESG. Um, What struck me about this article is the fact that it's Popular Science that did it. And I really love that Mm. because Popular Science, of course, one of the great magazines for anyone who loves tech. October 5th, how to tell if your sustainable investments really are good for the planet. Um, I, I just read this and I love the fact that Popular Science is taking on ESG because it really shows that there are smart people really kind of seeing through any greenwashing that some players and some actors may be putting to the table with ESG. I I happen to believe that most American companies, most global companies, it's in their best interest to be ESG stewards. But a couple of the people they interviewed in this article is really good because it's saying what we have been saying all along, which is ESG needs to kind of work itself out of business because we talk about ESG ETFs and investing in those and those are outperforming the market. But the reality is at some point, every company, every investment opportunity must have the highest credentials of being an ESG actor. So therefore, when everybody is an ESG player, you're almost... ESG just becomes part of the standard vernacular. You're only going to invest in those companies that have very good social contracts with their investors and their stakeholders. Popular Science gives you a little bit of, just a a little bit of a roadmap on how to look out for the right players at the right time. Totally recommend this story. Uh, Really happy to see Popular Science taking
2: on. Yeah, we had a guest on this, right? And she did a really good job setting us straight on what ESG is and that ESG is is a criteria. It's not like... uh, box that you buy right so yeah
1: that's right that's right so great article um i really like the four that i had
2: well you know to stay on this too i'd really like to see esg done right right i don't i don't want to just be a critic of esg Uh, we need we need that money invested in in the clean energy transition right so let's hopefully we can get it right
1: well, and also like a lot of the companies aren't even actors in clean energy creation or technology, but if they create a more efficient company themselves and are using less resources to get their product to market, uh, and they're doing it with a diverse workforce, with diverse you know C-suites, and they have the right governance that gives the company integrity, then that's a win-win for everybody. So they may not be a direct player in clean tech per se, but they may be just helping to move the needle for all of us to have the right sustainability goals.
2: Yeah, okay. Okay, over to you. Cool. All right, so I'm going to, this is a little charged, but I'm going to go to my favorite news source, Utility Dive again. This one is, Firks Danley spoke, I guess, to Congress, saying Democrats' clean electricity plan is an H-bomb that would end the markets. This is from September 29. Uh, obviously a little inflammatory from Robert Walton here. Um and so everybody's talking about the you know three point five trillion dollar plan. Well, buried in there is a lot of uh, policies and incentives for clean energy. So a lot of that, you know, I would like to see pass just um, just by itself. Uh, so they asked uh, for permission to come down and, and talk about this, and he had these highly inflammatory words that H bomb um, would effectively end his market. So. You know, this is exactly what's happening with Mopar, that incentives are distorting market forces. And he's in charge of those markets. Well, he's in charge of making the rules for the markets, which creates the markets even, right? So this is going to take Mopar and make it like 10x if this goes through in the next 10, 15 years. I don't know if you know, um, there's an incentive mechanism in here that states... Um, electricity providers to increase the amount of clean energy distributed to customers by 4% year over year. There's a carrot and a stick on that. So you get a reward. If you do it, you get a, you get a punishment. If you don't. Um, So this is going to drive the Mopar issue, you know, 10 X. Like if we thought Mopar was a problem before it's going to be 10 times worse because now you're going to have 4% more clean energy bidding into markets every year, bidding zero, and driving him and his market economists crazy, right? So I understand why he's upset. I would say, <laughs> right? I would say that. <laughs> because he wants, you know, and he says it's t- the markets move slow and it's taken decades. Come on. it's These markets have been around since 99, okay? They're not. <laughs> uh, the utilities have been around since the 50s. Regulation has been around since the 50s. And yeah, that goes slow but his markets are relatively new and yes, they have been changing. And so I don't, I don't really accept that as an argument, but uh, yeah, we will have to figure a solution to this. So it's why Mopar initially was, was sad for me. Mopar falling apart actually was sad for me because now we're worse than we were before <laughs> Mopar. Cause we don't have a solution. Oh. So it's still causing problems. I just saw some news about PGM. Um, Asking for approval for their reliability auction. So it's it's still up in the air, and this is almost worse than not having Mopar at all. So we need to find a solution to this. We gotta have Neil Beck on. We gotta drill him on this. I'm sure he's got the solution. We gotta get it out of him.
1: Well, for our listeners who were not on the episode or didn't hear the Neil Chatterjee, former for commissioner episode, tell me tell me again what Mopar is so people remember.
2: I don't know how much our listeners know about markets, but You know, markets, you need supply and demand. You need a bidder and an offerer, And, you know, they offer what they can and they bid for what they need. And then the price settles where those two balance, right? Right. Um, The problem is clean energy is getting large incentives from state or federal. And so they can bid lower than their natural gas and, and coal and fossil fuel competitors. And so they're distorting that settling price down and so pretty much everybody in the market kind of suffers from that because they're not getting paid enough say to pay for their power plant and we need them to get paid enough to keep that power plant up and running right we all need that so their solution was to put floor that's the minimum offer price rule you can't offer less than some number and they tried to make some number you know the number everybody needs to stay afloat but you know it's it's non-market influence and then you have a non-market solution and then you know that's why I'm not a fan of it you, you need a market solution you know my suggestion was just to cut out zero bidders or 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 renewable energy because you're going to take it anyhow uh, and so why are they in the market distorting the market so that's kind of the argument here
1: yeah you know what I think what I'm going to do if I get some bandwidth this weekend uh, maybe on the treadmill I'm actually going to try and go on C-SPAN's uh, YouTube page and actually let's see if I can find this testimony. I want to hear it out because uh, I, I didn't hear the testimony. I thought the article is pretty good. Uh, you know, it gives like a little bit of back and forth of what actually happened, but uh, this is such an important issue to really understand how we're going to expand our transmission system, how we're going to pay for it. So this is all very important. So I don't want to give in a, uh, too much of an opinion now because I have to digest a lot more of this.
2: Question. Yeah. I mean, there's so much going on. I could talk about an, uh, for an hour. I mean, he brings up, um, you know, transmission cost allocations and New Jersey just announced today that they're no longer going to seek cost allocation. They're just going to pay for transmission lines. They don't care anymore. I mean, like, really? Holy wow. crap. You will definitely get transmission billed that way. Absolutely. So that was shocking to me. <laughs> Absolutely. So...
1: One thing I want to bring up, and don't ask me why this, there's, it's not really totally related to this. Article I saw this morning, didn't get it on today's episode, maybe I'll do the episode, uh, the article next week, but Greenpeace has come out and said they want to eliminate all carbon offset programs because they said all it's doing is giving fossil fuel emitters uh, uh, some stall time. Uh, it's not truly, yep. it's not truly uh, working. I think in the future, I'd like to have somebody to talk about carbon offset as a guest. We can really d- jump into that. So, yeah. Make a point. That's out.
2: perfect. That's perfect that you bring that up because I'm going to do something right here. You ready? Ready. Go. I'm going to call it. I'm calling it. All we right. are done with the early transition. Today's the day. Today's the day early clean energy transition died. We are now in middle energy transition.
0: Wow.
1: Uh We should notify somebody about that, right?
2: (laughs) I mean, and the reason why is because stuff is breaking, right? So I always said that, you know, look, there's some minimum level where we could just install solar and wind and just do it, do it, do it, do it. Nothing bad happens. And then we reach a point where things start to break. And then we have to change our strategy. And so I think we're at that point where we're away from early transition where things like you know, just throw solar on the grid and we'll have offsets, stuff like that. Uh all that stuff has been is being done and now it's piling up and now we've gotten to a point where that's not where we need to go on the next step. We need to do something different on the next step. So yes. I think things will get um things will be messy and we need solutions. So Can I had just have- seen two that um sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, I'm sorry to interrupt. We've said it time and time again, we need to start picking winners and losers because we only have so much capital to allocate towards getting to our targets in in next 20, 30 years. So I agree with you. I mean, let's call Al Gore and tell him October 7th, 2021 is the day. This is it. We're
2: in middle. We're in middle transition.
1: I'm totally okay with that. So let's, um, let's absorb this article and let's talk about carbon offsets very soon. And let's see if this is actually working because you know what? we got to get to our numbers. we got to get to uh, really bringing carbon out of the atmosphere as soon as possible.
2: Yeah. You know, I'd read an article, too, where an oil and gas executive was trying to scare people, saying, oh, if we have increased demand, we need $20 billion of in investment in the oil and gas industry now to meet anticipated demand in 2025. I don't think this person understands that they're not getting it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I don't think they're getting it. Well. And it's like, mm, no, that $25 billion is going to something else.
1: I think a lot of people are getting it, though. So it just, it'll make its way up to the C-suite at some point.
2: So so anyhow, I mean, I brought that up because there's so many good articles I want to talk about right now. And we just don't have time. So I have to pick the biggest ones. And, you know, this is, this is one of the reasons why I'm making this declaration. This is from Bloomberg, September 29th. We have three more UK power suppliers. Uh, I think they're, I can't read that. They went bankrupt.
1: Collapsed, yeah.
2: Because of this energy crisis, this is September twenty-nine. This is still going on, by the way. Uh, natural gas prices in Europe spiked 40% yesterday. I mean, it came down, you know, afterwards, but holy cry, stuff is breaking in Europe right now. This is from Rachel Morrison, Ted Gillespie. This is, uh, to me, an indication of early transition decisions which were okay early in the transition, but now they've all added up so much and we have so much solar and wind without enough storage deployed that things are starting to break and people are still making early transition decisions and they're not realizing we're in the middle (laughs) transition, right? And we need a lot more storage deployed. There's a lot of aspects to this that I don't (laughs) want to get into. Uh, Europe is short on natural gas. Read an article that they shut down a pipeline to the UK. So the UK is short on natural gas. That sense, price is skyrocketing. Uh, basically, you know any kind of energy firm that promised a price either for natural gas or electricity now can't buy it at an economic price. And so they're either going to take a loss or they're going to close close their business. And so that's what's going on. This is so, crazy. i are going to see more of this.
1: I tell you what, it's crazy. I think you hit a couple of real key points I'm going to back you up on. One thing about the US, I feel we're doing a better job versus our European friends is focusing on redundancy and resiliency in the system. And I think that's why we're, I feel like we're emphasizing energy storage a bit more than people throughout the rest of the world. And I feel like we're really ramping up that technology. We talked about molten salt, we talked about batteries. I really think we are focusing a little bit more on it. Maybe that's just a function of Europe being so proactive and being a leader and being green. That they probably, maybe their installed base beat us a little bit, but they weren't kind of tying it to the whole um, the whole system, if you will, the whole grid, and really understanding where they had some shortfalls. The other thing that comes to mind is, especially when it comes to Europe and natural gas, because we always talk about importing a Russian natural, natural gas, these are national security issues as well, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think we need to start looking at it in the U.S. and in Europe through the lens of national security. Not just climate, you know, impact, you know, the volatility from wildfires and hurricanes, et cetera, but also scarcity of resources, having, you know, grid resiliency, having all those things has to be looked at. Resiliency has to be a key part of national security. And so I think if I'm in, if I'm in Europe and I'm in the EU and we're talking about the problems in the UK, I think I would give NATO a call and I would put a NATO white paper together <laughs> on energy. Why not? I really well, think I'm pretty they-
2: sure they have calls. <laughs>
1: Are they answering? I don't know. Is NATO picking up the phone on this? I don't know.
2: I'm trying to get Carolyn Kassane to come on and answer all these questions for us. Right? <laughs> I'm
1: back, Carolyn. Good article, man.
2: Yeah, I mean, and this is going to keep happening as long as we still think we're in the the early stage of the transition. As long as we still think we can, you know, just squelch uh, fossil fuels and we we don't need to pay for storage and we could just keep adding solar and wind. these these problems are going to magnify. So you're exactly right. We need a system, full system thinking, right? About, okay, you shut down a coal plant. How are you going to service that load? Because we can't just absorb it in the grid anymore. We can't, you have to, you know, it's just like, (laughs) it's just like the congressional, congressional budget making process, right? Oh, you want to spend $3.5 trillion? Where are you going to get the money? You have to, You have to replace, right? You have to get it from somewhere. You can't just shut down a coal plant and be like, ah, well, the grid will figure it out. No, no, we can't do that anymore. Wait a second. Oh, I'm sorry. There's
1: there's a process in in budget making in in Washington. I didn't think there was a process.
2: Yeah, remember, it's going to be zero
1: cost. (laughs) Um, Hey, you know what? Jokes aside, aside, if you take an oil refinery offline, a refinery for gasoline, you're putting... The, the equivalent of one coal plant worth of electricity, like a 200 megawatt plant back into
2: the grid. Back in the That's grid. how much
1: electricity it takes to make uh, gasoline using, by, used by oil. Not refined. to
2: mention the oil pumping, not to mention the transportation of the crude and the transportation of the refined product.
1: Exactly right. So we can get there, folks. We can get there. Good article, man.
2: Yeah. Okay. A lot, a lot going on. So, yeah. Crazy that times.
1: Helps. Oh, you're done?
2: We live in crazy times. Yeah, I only had two.
1: Um, tell you what, this was a great episode. Really, hats off to AJ and and our new friends at Lifecycle. Um, you know, please follow them. Uh, I just love hearing about people scaling up. He has 160 employees now, and they're all dedicated to you know making this thing work, making their system work. There's you know he has some competition out there, probably different processes, but it's getting to the same end game. So uh that's fantastic lucas before we hang up please tell everyone how they can keep following us and what they can do to make our show as popular as can be
2: (laughs) yeah so you know feel free to tell all your friends that uh this is where you come to get the real real dirt on the latest cleaner engine news thinking and analysis by <laughs> two of the greatest guys in clean energy. Uh, um, you know, we're on YouTube. You can find us on YouTube. Search for pirates of clean tech. Uh, you click subscribe. And if you'd like to get notifications on your phone, you just click that alarm bell button and then it pops up on your phone. when when our episodes get uploaded, we're also on your favorite podcast venue and you can search for pirates of clean tech. I think we have clean tech as one word. Is it one word or two words? Um right. We changed it from one to the other. <laughs> I know. I can't remember which one. And, uh, <laughs> and you hit subscribe or uh, whatever the button is on your favorite podcast. So we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Anchor. We're, I assume we're on Spotify then because they own Anchor. We're on all of this. So.
1: And you know what? Before we hang up, uh, one of our favorite private listeners, Chris, Chris D., uh, one of my friends and mentors, he sent me an article and I didn't use it. It just dawned on me. So shout out to Chris. Chris, I will get that article on next time. It was a really good one about Asia and ESG. So so apologies, Chris. I will get that on there. I totally forgot about it.
2: I mean, we all know about the whole Asian, Indian China alone and their demand for electricity is just off the charts. Right. So.
1: Yeah. Mm. And you know what? We may have a guest in the near future talking about um, clean, clean energy generation in China, trying to work that angle. So. Uh, a great great friend and very intelligent person so
2: in oh let's do that yeah okay
1: anyways uh, great episode and uh, please continue to support us we appreciate you guys so much with that I'm Eric Planey
2: I'm Lucas Finko
1: and we are the Pirates of Clean Tech yarr
2: Yar! <laughs> eh? <laughs>